It's good to see everybody tonight. We're glad that you're here. Uh, we're studying Acts chapter 13 tonight, and uh, hope you're enjoying all these studies in the book of Acts as we get a, uh, a history of what was going on in the first century. And uh, as Brother Monty talked about, these, these are the acts of the Holy Spirit in a lot of ways because that's what Jesus promised to them that when he left, he would not leave them comfortless, but he would give them the Holy Spirit to guide them into all truth. And as they're going around and establishing churches, they're being guided by God himself through the means of the Holy Spirit. And, and so we're going to, as, as we talked about, we're shifting from Peter to Paul now. And, and this is actually going to be the first time we hear that name, Paul, uh, because up to this point, he's been known to us as Saul. We're going to do some geographical things tonight. I don't have Justin's map up here, but there are some maps. Uh, they're not all even in color for that matter. Uh, but we're going to be looking at some different places that Paul traveled and also get a feel for some of the, the uh, turf that he covered in his ministry. So I've entitled this Paul's First Missionary Journey. And when we say missionary journey, uh, missionary journey means as he was traveling around going to various places. Paul traveled quite a bit before he went on what scholars call his first missionary journey. And we're going to see some of that tonight in our study. That is supposed to be verse 1. I think it post pasted it in there incorrectly. That's Acts 13 verse 1. So don't get confused. We're not going to verse 11. Uh, a lot of this chapter, even though it's a longer chapter, is going to be narrative. So we're not going to spend a ton of time. We'll just briefly go over it and kind of give some context but I do want to spend a little bit of time here at the beginning talking about an arrangement that they had in the church of Antioch and the reason why we don't have a paid minister or one person do all the preaching here at Somerville Street. Now, this is not an indictment on, on others. I just want to explain biblically why we do what we do. Why do we have multiple teachers? We see this as an example here in Acts 13 and verse 1. It says in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So there were five different men that are mentioned here who were teaching in this church at Antioch. We see the same thing in Corinth where you see the instructions given by Paul himself when he says about the church assembly, let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. They had multiple people who would get up and they would address the congregation and they would teach the word of God. We also see regarding Antioch in Acts chapter 15, 35, it says Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, listen, with many others also. So again, they did not have one person that did all the teaching, but they had several people that did the teaching. And this was part of Timothy's work as Paul told Timothy to go out and work among these churches. Notice that Paul tells Timothy, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Notice that Paul told Timothy, I want you to go find faith men and teach them what I've taught you so they can in turn teach others as well. He doesn't say go find men and, and take them to seminary or, or make them go to college and get a doctorate. He just said commit these things to faithful men and those faithful men will be able to teach others also and they'll be able to learn. And this is a 
a perpetual process of training and teaching and learning. And this is the way the early church operated. Out of the 44 congregations mentioned in the New Testament, there's not one man ever referred to as the preacher or their preacher. Not one. In fact, out of approximately 106 Christian men that are mentioned in the New Testament, none of them are ever referred to as the preacher or the pulpit minister. Uh, That's not an office that we see in the Bible. We see elders, we see deacons, and then we see teachers, or as we say, would say, teachers or preachers. There were apostles, but that office is no longer existing today. But I wanted to share that with you. The reason why we do what we do here with multiple teachers is because that's the pattern that we see biblically in the book of Acts and also taught in some of the letters that that's how they operated. They had multiple people that taught. And we could go into that in a lot of detail and talk about the work of evangelists and elders' duty to teach, but we're not going to take time to do that as it would probably take about an hour and a half if we were going to cover this chapter and do that. Okay, so... It mentions all these various prophets and teachers, and it says, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Another thing we could go into detail about, which we're not going to talk about a lot tonight, is fasting. And whether or not fasting is a New Testament practice. I will, I will just suffice to say this, in the book of Acts we see where Christians fasted. And they fasted for various reasons. They, uh, it's even mentioned in 1 Corinthians 7 that, that a man and a woman are not to deprive their spouse of intimate relations except it be for fasting and prayer. It was something that the New Testament church did. They were doing that at this time. They were fasting and they were praying. The Holy Spirit then tells them to separate to himself Barnabas and Saul for the work which I called them. So this is different. This is something that's different in Paul and Barnabas' life. The, the Spirit comes and he says, separate these two men out. And they've been at Antioch for some time, working with the church at Antioch. And now the Spirit, God has something else for them to do. And so it says, when they had fasted and prayed, notice, and they laid hands on them. And I believe what's happening here is they're ordaining them, much like we hear about Timothy when he says that you had the laying on of the hands of the presbytery, The elders, they sent Timothy out to do his work on missionary work. And that's what's happening here. These men are being sent away. And that word sent away is the word apoluo, which is related to the word apostle. And the word apostle sometimes is translated those who are sent. So they're being sent by the church at Antioch. They're going to go on this missionary journey. But before we get there, let's talk about where they've been. Uh, Because they've spent a great deal of time, Paul and Barnabas have, in Antioch. So we want to back up for a moment to Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11 that, that Brother Monty was, was reading for us, then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So, so this is in the past. Paul and Barnabas both had spent a year in Antioch. And then you remember, in those days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And Agabus, one of the prophets... He prophesied that there would be a famine in the land, and so they sent money by the hands of Paul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem to the needy saints. And so now they're in Jerusalem. So they traveled a lot. And, and Acts chapter 12, 25 says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And that ministry being they were to take that money down there that was sent by their hands. And they also took them with, with them John whose surname was Mark, or we just call him John Mark a lot of the times in Scripture. Sometimes he's just referred to as John, other times he's referred to as Mark. So, let's talk about where Paul went. So, 
after Paul was converted at Damascus, Paul talks about that he went to Arabia. And obviously Arabia is a big area in the time of Paul. This is all Arabia now. Uh, but this was Arabia in the time of Paul. So he goes from Damascus to Arabia, doesn't go to Jerusalem yet, but later from Arabia he comes back to Damascus and he spends three years in Damascus. And if you want all the verses, verse references, uh, get with me after church and we'll get those scripture references that outline some of this. Uh, so he spends three years in Damascus and then he goes to Jerusalem for 15 days. And after those 15 days, God tells him, you need to get out of Jerusalem. And he goes up through Caesarea and all the way back to his hometown of Tarsus. Remember, his name is Saul of Tarsus. He goes back home. And then that's where we pick up Acts 11, where Barnabas is in Antioch. And he goes to get Saul from Tarsus and brings him back to Antioch. And they spend a year there. Then the dearth comes, the famine comes, or it's coming on. And Paul and Barnabas travel back to Jerusalem. And then eventually back to Antioch. So they've already made a pretty good track, uh, but they haven't done what we might call missionary work at this point. And so what we're going to have here is after God tells them, set these guys apart, they lay their hands on them, they send them away, and now we're going to pick up the work that they did throughout the rest of the chapter. It says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to, and I, this word is actually Seleukia, uh, and I, I always say Seleucia, but Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John, that's John Mark, from chapter 12, as their assistant. Now when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus. And we'll get to this guy here in a minute. But first, let's get our bearings again, because here in just three verses... We cover hundreds of miles that they've traveled. So let's, let's get our bearings. We got Seleucia, Cyprus, Salamis, and Paphos. So let's go to our map for a moment. Uh, now we're not going to talk about this. This is number nine. This is, this is leg number nine of his trip. We're not going to get there tonight. But as they leave Antioch, they go over to here to Seleucia, and then they travel all the way down here to Salamis on Cyprus. Now, if you notice, this is 100 kilometers. They travel by sea about 200 kilometers. That's a long distance to travel by sea. And then they end up going from Salamis to Paphos. And Paphos is where we're going to be spending a lot of our time tonight. That's where they run into this guy named Bar-Jesus, uh, who was a false prophet. So we'll get to all this up here later on in our study, and we'll expand that map out and get even more tracks of where they went. But that gives us a, an idea. They sailed to to the island of Cyprus in this area, and they're now on Paphos, which is on the west coast. So when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus. I find that interesting. A Jew who's a sorceress. That just seems very strange considering the law forbid any type of sorcery or, or any familiar spirits. But this is the guy they find. Now, this is also interesting. The name Bar-Jesus, Bar, is actually not a name. It's a term meaning son of. You've got Bar-Jonas, Bar Simon Bar-Jonas, son of Jonah. You've got Barnabas, Barnabas, which is son of consolation. Uh, and also son of prophecy, if you look at the root word of that, Nabus or Nabi, son of prophecy. This guy's name is Bar, son of Jesus, which is Joshua. Uh, that's the same name. Joshua and Jesus are the same name in the Hebrew. It's Yeshua, Yeshua. It's Joshua. That's the name. So Jesus and Joshua share the same name. This guy's name is son of Jesus. He's a false prophet. 
I don't know that he's claiming to be the son of Jesus, but that's his name, son of Jesus or son of Joshua. And it says that this guy was with the proconsul or the ruler, Sergius Paulus, same name for Paul here, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So this Sergius Paulus hears about Paul and, and Barnabas somehow, and he wants them to come and speak to him. He wants to hear about the word, but, but this guy Bar-Jesus, who also goes by this name Elamus, is going to run interference. He does not want Paul and Barnabas talking to Sergius Paulus. So it says, but Elamus the sorcerer, for so is his name is, so his name is translated. And this word Elamus just means magician or magi. Um, and so it's, it, that's what they're calling him. That's what they're translating his name as, Elamus. Same guy, Bar-Jesus and Elamus. It says that he withstood them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. He does not want Sergius Paulus to listen to their message. And, and perhaps it's because he's attached himself to this man. He's a powerful man because he's attached himself to this man. Some of that speculation, but obviously there's some reason he does not want Sergius to hear the gospel. Now, Paul is going to get really strong with this guy, and we're going to jump into that in a moment. But first, let's pick up this verse right here. Then Saul, who is also called Paul. This is the last time in the book of Acts, and in the Bible for that matter, that we're going to hear Paul called Saul, and the first time that we hear him ever called Paul. It's a transition right here in the middle of this verse. And some might say, well, why is he called Paul from here on? And, and, and there's a lot of speculation about that. I think the most believable reason for that is Paul is his Roman name. Paul is a Roman name. And given the fact he's going into Roman provinces and he's dealing with Gentiles, it makes sense that he would go by his Roman name rather than his Hebrew name. However, there's a hole in that theory because he goes to the synagogues first when he goes to cities. And so I don't know if he goes by Saul when he goes there and he goes by Paul. I just know Luke stops calling him Saul at this point and starts calling, his, calling him Paul. So conjecture aside, supposition beside, what we do know is from this point on, he's known as Paul. And so Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. That is at Elamus. And now these are very, very strong words that Paul uses with Elamus. He says, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul, that is Sergius Paulus, believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So even though Elamus is trying to run interference, he doesn't want Sergius Paulus to be converted. That doesn't work. And why doesn't it work? Because God's in control here. And, and understand that, God's in control here. Unless we think that we can bless someone out like Paul blesses out this guy, let's back up and remember, Paul is filled with the Spirit. He's filled with the Spirit. What he's saying here is being guided by God. And so these strong words that he's using with this man are Paul being filled with the Spirit. And those are strong words. He calls him a liar, a fraud, a son of the devil. I mean... <laughs> I don't know what stronger words you could use. And obviously this would be insulting and offensive to a person. But it's all true. This guy's perverting the straight ways. He is a fraud. He's a liar. He's not a sorcerer. He's not a magician. He's a nuisance is what he is. And God blinds him. He blinds him. And this causes the proconsul to take notice. And then he believes, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Seeing the sign and also the teachings of Paul here. So this is what happens in Paphos. Now... 
When Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, it says they came to Perga in Pamphylia. More about that in a moment. And John, that's also John Mark again, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. So we've got more geographical places that Paul has traveled. And again, he's making quite a track because now he leaves Paphos, he leaves Cyprus, and he goes up here to Perga in the area of Pamphylia. That's Perga of Pamphylia. All these are regions, Lycia, Pamphylia, Pisidia, uh, Laconia, and even Galatia. Notice when you go read Galatians next time, if you haven't noticed this before, it wasn't written to the church at Galatia. It was written to the churches, plural, at Galatia, because Galatia is not a city, it is a region. Galatia is a region. Pisidia is also a region. So they go all the way from here to Perga, and from Perga, they travel up here to Antioch, but this is not the same Antioch. This is Antioch in Pisidia, and that's why Luke clarifies and says Antioch of Pisidia. The other Antioch that they spent so much time is way down here on the north edge of, or on the northwest edge rather, of the area of Syria. So now they're in Antioch of Pisidia. And just so we don't have to open this map again, because we're going to get to another region later, I'll just go ahead and show you. From there, they end up going to Iconium and then eventually Lystra and Derby. So we're going to get to Iconium later. And we're not going to open the map back up, but that'll give us a good idea of where they traveled once they leave Antioch and Pisidia. So what, the rest of what we're going to read, most of what we're going to read is going to happen here in Antioch of Pisidia, where they go into the synagogue and, and they begin teaching the gospel. So after reading the law, verse 15, the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them saying, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. They probably had no idea what was coming. <laughs> But they, they said, if, if y'all want to say something, say something. So Paul stands up and he motions with his hand and he says, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Now, that, I, I want to point this out because this jumped off the page at me when I first read this. You men of Israel and you who fear God. And so there's a distinction there and he's going to call that distinction later again and talk about why, why he uses and men who fear God. So we'll get to that in just a moment, but hold on to that for just a minute. So he addresses them and he says, Listen, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers, exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. That's his whole summary of the story of Exodus. That's it, right there. Then he's going to move on. He says, now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. There's the entire 40 years in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. So there's the conquering of Canaan. So we've got Exodus 20 all the way through Joshua, summarized in three verses as he's going through history and reminding them of things that God did. Verse 20, after that he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. That's a long period of time. 450 years between the time of Canaan and them going uh, towards Saul, wanting Saul as their king when Samuel comes along and he is the uh, ordainer or appointer of kings. And so afterward they asked for a king, so God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, and that's also interesting, God removed Saul from being king, and we could go back and read about that uh, because of Saul's rejection. It says, He raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, 
who will do all my will. And this is actually a prophecy uh, from 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 14. That's why it's in all caps uh, for y'all young people. This is not yelling. I know today when you put something in all caps, that's yelling. In the New King James, that means it's a prophecy. So anytime you see all caps, and we're going to see that a few times tonight, it's saying this is from the Old Testament. He's quoting from the Old Testament. And this is from 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. When God rejects Saul and says, I found someone else, a man after my own heart, which was referring to the son of Jesse, which is who we know as David. From this man's seed, that's David's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I'm not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to lose. So now he's, he's gone all the way from Exodus all the way to John the Baptist in a very short time, connecting all these dots for the people here in Antioch of Pisidia in the synagogue, and then he says, men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham. Now listen, and those among you who fear God. So there's the distinction. He's saying all of you who are sons of Abraham, that is you're from the lineage of Abraham, and all of you who also fear God that are proselytes. In other words, they weren't born of the seed of Abraham, but they are believers. They are Jews in every sense of the word other than their genetics. So they are also men that fear God. And he says, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. To who? To the Jew. To those who believe and fear God. He says, for those who dwell in Jerusalem... And the rulers, because they did not know him, that's Jesus, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read in every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. Now this is, this is crazy to think about. He says, every single Sabbath, the prophets are read. And what happened? The very prophecies that they heard every Sabbath day, they fulfilled those prophecies in condemning the Messiah. Why? Because they didn't know the voice of the prophets. Even though they listened to it every single Sabbath, they didn't know what it was about. And then they fulfilled it, not even knowing that they were fulfilling it in condemning Jesus. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. So as you see, this sermon is somewhat similar to a, it's sort of a blending of what Peter said in Acts 2 and what Stephen said in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 7, although Stephen is much more detailed in his outlining of the history. And what you have here is he's preaching the gospel of Christ all the way from Moses until Jesus is resurrected. And now he's going to begin to lay out evidence from the Old Testament that confirms all these things were actually prophesied to come to fruition. Verse 32, he says, And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the Father. So glad tidings here. This is the word euangelizo. That is where we get our word evangelism. Same word, evangelism. He says, we declare to you evangelism. And what it literally means is good news. Tidings is just an archaic word for news we wouldn't call it tidings we would say news today and that's what he's saying we declare unto you good news uh, news brought by a messenger that's what evangelist means a good messenger and so they're bringing a good message and what is that message it says that promise which was made to the fathers well what promise 
Well, he's going to tell us. Verse 33, God has fulfilled this, what? This promise for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Psalms chapter 2, when God says, you are my son, this day I have begotten you, that begettal is not the birth of Jesus, but the, if you will, the rebirth of Jesus, the resurrection, the begettal of Jesus. And the Hebrew writer also uses this phrase to confirm the deity of Christ. To the son, he says, today you are my son, this day I have begotten you. And if you'll go back, as he talks to them about the second psalm, if they went back and they read this, you know what the end of that chapter says? Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. Kiss the son. What's he saying? Jesus was not only crucified and is resurrected, but he is the son of God. He's God's son. And the second psalm confirms that it's God's son because God said, you are my son Today I have begotten you. Verse 34, and that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken this, or thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Now this one's a little bit trickier. This is from Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 3. And I would encourage you to go back and read the entire chapter in your own leisure time of Isaiah 55 and 3. Because it's all messianic language. That's, that's actually where we have that um, phrase where God says, uh, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts and my ways higher than your ways. And it's literally talking about his mercy, his ways of mercy. God's ways of mercy, his thoughts of mercy are higher than ours and greater than ours. It's all messianic, but he brings in this, I will give you the sure mercies of David. The sure mercies of David. What is the cross about? It's about mercy. And what's he say? This is all talking about the resurrection. Verse 35, therefore he says also in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. This is probably a more familiar psalm to us because he's quoting from Psalm 16 and 10. This is the same psalm that, that Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2 and it's quoted in other sermons in the book of Acts as well, confirming that David was speaking about the resurrection. And so just like Peter did in Acts 2, Paul is now going to use reason with them saying, look, David was not talking about himself. How do we know David wasn't talking about himself being the Holy One that didn't see corruption? Well, here's how we know. Verse 36, for David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. He's saying, how could this be about David? We know that David is still in the tomb. David is rotting. David saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. The tomb's empty. He's not there. So David couldn't have been talking about himself because David didn't see corruption. Just like uh, Peter would say in Acts 2 where he says, David is not yet ascended into the heavens, but he said, the Lord said to my Lord. And so we know this is not about David, but David was speaking through the Spirit of Christ, which was in him and signifying the sufferings and also the glory that should follow. Verse 38, therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, that's Jesus, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. Now we're at the heart of the matter. Everything else that was confirming who Jesus is is to get to this point, to preach to these people in Antioch of Pisidia the forgiveness of the remission of sins. And he says, And by him everyone who believes is justified, that is cleared from guilt or made right from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So there's that distinction again. Moses' law will not save you. But Jesus 
will. It's the sure mercies of David. It's the plan that God ordained that through Jesus you would receive forgiveness of sins. Verse 40, beware therefore. Well, that's interesting. Isn't that interesting? That's kind of an interesting shift. He says, you can't be saved by the law of Moses. Beware therefore lest what has been spoken in the prophets comes upon you. And this is actually from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 5. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. This is Habakkuk, here again, through the Holy Spirit, prophesying that there would be people in Israel, the Jews, would reject Jesus. Notice the language. Behold, you despisers. Who is Jesus? He's a man rejected of God and despised. He's despised and rejected. Behold, you despisers. He said, be careful that you don't despise him. Marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, and you will by no means believe that work, though one were to declare it to you. He's saying, you better beware if you reject Jesus, if you reject the Son. But they did. (laughs) They didn't heed the warning. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that those words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. So what we're seeing right here in verse 43 is that many of these Jews and devout proselytes, again, here's that same distinction, seed of Abraham and the devout proselytes, they follow Paul and Barnabas. And notice that Paul and Barnabas persuades them to continue in the grace of God, which means they believe the message that they heard. The Gentiles weren't quite convinced, but they wanted to hear about it again next week. And so it says that they begged that these same words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. But then when we get to the next verse, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. So there's been quite a stir. And they're gathered again. And Paul's ready to preach to them. And notice verse 45. Just like Elamus, these people want to run interference. And when the Jews saw the multitudes, listen, they were filled with envy. What's that tell us? Their intentions are not noble. These men are not doing this out of conviction. They're doing this out of envy. They're filled with envy. Just like the Pharisees over and over were filled with envy against Jesus and against the apostles. They didn't want to lose their position. And so they began to contradict and blaspheme. And that word blaspheme doesn't mean blaspheme God. It means to speak evil against or defame someone. So they're, they're trying to defame Paul. And so they're opposing the things that are spoken by Paul. They're trying to refute all the things that Paul is saying. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold. And they said it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it, what did he just tell them last week? Beware, you despisers. You beware. Beware about rejecting. Because we're going to declare it and you're not going to believe it. And you beware. And what do they do? They do it. They, They fulfill it. They reject the word. And he said, since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Those are strong words. Strong words. Since you judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Here's the shift in Paul's ministry. Before this, we, don't, we actually don't have any record. It doesn't mean he didn't do it, but now we're getting a record of Paul turning to the Gentiles. Now, Paul is the apostle chosen to the Gentiles. And again, Peter opens that door in Acts 10, but Paul's ministry is primarily toward the Gentiles. But when he went to these cities, where did he go first? To the Jew. And he tells these Jews, since you reject it, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. And then he quotes, again, prophecy. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles 
that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. We're actually going to go read this prophecy. I'm not going to read the entire prophecy, but we're going to read this prophecy because I think it's very impactful to read these words of Isaiah that were written close to 800 years before Paul is actually revealing the meaning of this prophecy. So back to Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. <coughs> Indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant and raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So there's the quote that Paul uses. But notice what God says. It's too small for you just to go to Israel. But I'm going to give you also as a light to every nation in all the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him who man despises. There it is again. To him who man despises. To him the nation, not nations, but nation abhors. Isaiah is prophesying the same thing that he would prophesy in chapter 53. That Jesus is despised and rejected. By who? By the very ones that God made the promises to. To the servant of the rulers, whoops, I pushed the wrong button. To the servant of the rulers, still speaking of Jesus, kings shall see and arise, princes shall also worship, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and He has chosen you. So, so let's not misunderstand think when Paul says this, that he's saying God has chosen me, Paul, to be the light to the Gentiles. No, he's talking about the Holy One of Israel. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus would be a light to the Gentiles now. Paul carried that light. He carried that light to the world. He shone that light, and that's how God is revealed, through the gospel. He brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so definitely he was a vessel of that light, but Paul was not the light. Jesus was the light. He was the one that was despised and rejected that the nation abhorred. He was the Holy One, the Redeemer of Israel. So going back to Acts chapter 13 now, as Paul continues this, it says, Now when the Gentiles heard this, heard what? Heard his proclamation to the Jews. Since you've judged yourself unworthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. So the Gentiles hear this. Why? Because the whole city's there. They hear this and it says they were glad. And they glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the regions. So we've flown through some of this other stuff for a reason. Because we've got to sit down for just a moment on something. Because this is a tricky little phrase right here. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. That sounds pretty predestination, doesn't it? So first off, we need to understand. What does the word appointed mean? And let's not read into the text. First off, it does not say they were pre-appointed or preordained, or foreordained, or foreappointed. That's not what it says. And we also need to understand what the word appointed means and how it's used in Scripture. Now, there's two schools of thought on this. One school of thought is that these people were already predetermined to have eternal life, and that's why they believed. And there's another school of thought that says, actually, that's not what that means. It just means they were disposed and inclined to, de to embrace the gospel, which is what I believe it's teaching here. Not that God had chosen these people to believe, and that's why they believed, and we're going to look at some evidence here in a moment that we see that God works that way. We do see that God opens people's hearts. And it could be that that's what it's saying here, that he opened their heart to believe. And that may bother us, but that's what the scripture, it uses that phrase over and over. Now, first off, this word appointed doesn't always mean appointed or ordained. In fact, it's the word tasso, which if you remember the study we did on submission, tasso is a combination of two words, to arrange or to set. And the word uh, tasso 
meaning to arrange or set, and hupo, meaning under something else, submit or subordinate, to set something under. That's what it means, to set in place or to arrange something. Now, notice how this word is used in 1 Corinthians 16, 15. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted, exact same Greek word, devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. So here's the word devoted. Now, do you think he's saying that they were preordained to the ministry of the saints? No, that's not what the word means here. What's it mean? They arranged themselves or they volunteered themselves. They have devoted or committed themselves to the ministry of the saints. So what they do, they arrange themselves in that place. So is there times when God opened people's hearts? Yeah, in fact, we're going to see that later as we study the book of, uh, of Acts in chapter 16 regarding Lydia. A certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. What does that mean, opened her heart? Well, let's see similar phrases to this. Luke chapter 24, 45. Then he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. This talking about the apostles. Well, why did he open their understanding? Because they didn't know. <laughs> they didn't understand the scriptures. And so he opened their understanding. Now... Ephesians 1.18, as Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he says, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. What's that mean? It means that they gained understanding. They, they were brought to light somehow. Why? That they may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints? The question is how? Well, he doesn't say, does he? He doesn't say how God did that. He just said God did that. And we know God did that. Well, there's another instance that we're probably familiar with, and that is the walk to Emmaus. And in Luke chapter 24, we have the end of this recorded for us in 30 through 32, where it says, Now as it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were open, and they knew him, and he vanquished or vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? You know, as they're walking, they don't know who they're walking with, and Jesus is conversing with them, and he talks to them about the scriptures and they still don't know and they're sad because Jesus is dead and they don't even know they're walking with Jesus and all of a sudden he breaks bread and their eyes are open well how'd that happen I don't know but I will say this look at what it says in verse 32 did you not feel it <laughs> that when he opened the scriptures was your heart not burning within you now what's the point of all this why are we going through all this go back to Acts 13 for a moment about the Gentiles so when the Jews went out of the synagogue the Gentiles begged that those words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. And who was it that it says were appointed to eternal life and believed? It was these people that were begging for the word. You know what every one of these examples we just looked at had in common? Desire. Every one of them had a desire. Lydia was worshiping God. Why? She had a desire. The apostles had a desire. All these people, the people that were on the walk to Emmaus, they had a desire God opens the eyes of people that have desire. You look at Philip and the eunuch. What happened with the eunuch? He was reading the scriptures and what did Philip say to him? Do you understand? No, I don't understand. I need guidance. What did God do? He provided guidance. He opened up his heart to understand. He knew now. He understood. How? I don't know. God doesn't say. Does that bother you? Does it bother you that God opened these people's hearts but he doesn't exactly say how he does that? Does that? Well, it shouldn't bother us because it's all over the New Testament. In fact, we see this in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12. It says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, now listen, and lying wonders, 
and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. What does he contrast here? People who love the truth, that they might be saved, and people who had pleasure in something else, that they may be condemned. Why was it that the Jews rejected Jesus? Was it because God looked down and said, I'm not going to open your hearts? Maybe. But the question's why. Because they despised him, and they rejected him, and they were full of envy. And so what does he say? You judged yourselves. That doesn't make sense. If God is the one in control of whether or not someone's heart is open, and it has nothing to do with desire, then why would he say, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life? Shouldn't he have said, God has judged you un unworthy of eternal life? No, it's not, that's not the way God works. Do you think God closes the hearts of those that are seeking him? Certainly that's not the case. We see the same thing with Cornelius. We see people who seek God, God provides a way. When people love the truth, God provides a way for people to have access to the truth. And that's what happened there in, in Acts chapter 14 in Antioch of Pisidia. These Gentiles were hungry for the word. They had a desire to hear the gospel of Christ. And so Paul preached to them and God opened their understanding and they obeyed that gospel. That's all he means. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. So they're kicked out. They, they kick them out of Antioch of Pisidia. Now this kind of interesting here. It says the prominent women and the chief men of the city. Now, uh, this is not meant to be sexist, so don't take this as sexist, but this is just reality, and we see this all the way back from Adam and Eve. Sometimes men's wives have some sway on them, and these prominent women and these chief men, most scholars and commentators believe these were the wives of the chief men. They were prominent women, women of position, and that they were helping to sway the people, let's get Paul and Barnabas out of our region. Whatever the case, it works. They expelled them from the region. And so what does Paul do? Does he go home and cry about it and say, well, we can't preach anymore? No, he, he goes to the next place, and that's where we end up in Iconium. So they shook off the dust of their feet against them and came to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. God's Word is working. The gospel is working. The gospel is bringing hope to a hopeless world. It's bringing hope to a Gentile world that did not know God, that did not have the promises that Israel had. And Paul is an intricate part in that. He is a vessel of that message as he's going to these places. And this deal right here shook off the dust from their feet. That is a very familiar phrase, isn't it? And we're going to end tonight with this thought from about shaking the dust off their feet. This is back in the limited commission when Jesus sent his disciples to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And notice what he says about shaking the dust off your feet. Whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. That idea of shake off the dust of your feet, there was two schools of thought on that. And one was that you shake it off and you basically you're washing your hands of it and saying it's on them now. But the other Jewish custom was when you shook the dust off of your feet, you were placing a condemnation on the place where you were doing that. Now, whether or not that's what Paul is doing, what we do know is he's, he's cutting his losses and moving on because he's got opportunities in other places. And so that's what he's doing is he's going to another place to preach the gospel. And 
We'll pick up more of Paul's missionary journeys as we go into the later books, Lord willing. So I hope you've enjoyed the study tonight. Um, it's always helpful to me to go back and revisit a lot of this, especially to see where they went and what they did. And, and it's also a large period of time in this one chapter that's been covered. Um, some, some have estimated years pass between the time that he leaves and heads towards Cyprus until the point that he gets all the way to Iconium. Uh, so you might research that for yourself, do some study on that, but it's very interesting. Uh, we don't like to end without offering the invitation of Jesus Christ, so if you're here tonight and you're subject to the gospel call, we want to invite you to come. If you're a Christian and you need the prayers of the church for any reason at all, we also ask that you would come. Have a seat on the front as we stand and we sing.